0: You're listening to Plenary Session. This week on Plenary Session, you're in for a real treat. I have a few things to talk to you about, and mostly, they're from ASCO. So I'm going to talk to you about first, the Polo Study. This is a study that has a result. So impressive, it has been called Giant Crumbling. It's the kind of study that makes the giants crumble. And we're going to see what exactly does crumble when we take a close look at it. Next, I'm going to talk to you about another study for the Giants called Titan. This is a study that somehow, although it appeared a year after other research that had established a new standard of care, it somehow ignored that standard of care when it was conducted. And thus, it too is a giant, but this is a Titan. So there's a giant crumbler, and then there's a Titan. And then we're going to go to the Lilliputian study, which is my presentation at asco that a listener asked me to give to the plenary session audience which i am going to do but unfortunately i'm not going to do it at the length that i was assigned at asco which was 15 minutes i'm going to do it at a much longer length so that we can unpack some of the concepts so i hope you enjoy this plenary session this asco themed plenary session stay tuned but first a plug if you like this episode and you like this podcast i need you to do three things One, go to patreon.com and back this podcast. Backing an artist you support on patreon.com is a great way to keep something going. Next, go to the iTunes store and don't just give us five stars. Write a review. Tell us what you like about the podcast and what you don't like. A written review goes a long way. Third, recommend Plenary Session to a friend. If you have a friend, a colleague, someone you think is going to like this podcast, give them a recommendation. We can use it on Plenary Session now what can plenary session do for you well we can answer your questions tweet to us at plenary underscore session or send us an email at plenary session at gmail.com we like listener comments and questions and we're happy to talk about them on the next episode all right it's time to talk about the polo trial which is elaborate for metastatic pancreatic cancer this is a provocative study this is a trial of a maintenance therapy which uh, involves its whole own set of principles. But the more I looked at this trial, the more I realized there was far more than meets the eye, and it deserves a deep dive. Before I get into it, let me read you some quotes about how it's been interpreted in the press. So, this is um, from STAT, Dr. Jose Baselga, who took over cancer research and development at AstraZeneca. Dr. Baselga, about this trial, quote, It's unbelievable, said Dr. Baselga. It validates the principle we have been fighting for all these years, that even in the most difficult disease, even the disease where you think you're not going to win, if you find the genetic vulnerability, if you find that, then those giants, they crumble. Oh, the giants, they crumble. That's one interpretation. Here are some other interpretations. This is from Twitter, Bashal. PFS with no OS or quality of life and maintenance against placebo? No thank you. More here. And he cites a paper that we published in Nature Review's Clinical Oncology, which I will talk about a little bit. We have Saroj Nirola. Our patients deserve effective treatments vetted with context-appropriate endpoints. It is criminal to prescribe expensive toxic treatments that don't make patients with a highly fatal disease live longer or better. Are we encouraging plunder? Who are we helping? And I think that, that's much more closer to the truth. Nikki Lawrence, completely agree. Outcomes in pancreatic cancer are poor. New drugs need to prolong survival and improve quality of life. Otherwise, there's no point. Alex Mentor, it's kind of amazing that two negative studies were presented at the plenary. One is held as an example of societal waste when approving a drug based on a phase two. That's Truvo. While the other tacitly endorses coverage of a drug with no OS benefit. Yet. Well put. That's a good observation. Ryan Huey writes... Olaparib was shown to have a PFS benefit versus placebo? Placebo? As if these patients get a true treatment holiday. The drug is active, but PFS should not be the endpoint of placebo as a comparator. Median time on treatment over 20 months, but that should have shown up as OS benefit. And he's absolutely right. All right, let's take you through this trial. This is a randomized controlled trial of Olaparib versus placebo in metastatic pancreatic cancer for patients with germline mutant BRCA. Now, what do you need to know? Well, you have to know that this is completely novel. There has never been something called maintenance in pancreatic cancer. And that is for the unfortunate fact that the majority of patients likely progress on frontline treatment and thus require a quick second-line treatment if they're to receive a second-line treatment at all. Pancreatic cancer is among the most lethal malignancies. I think one thing that points in that direction is the Fulfirinox versus gemcitabine metastatic pancreatic cancer trial that appeared in the New England Journal of Medicine, where the median OS in the Fulfirinox group, which, you know, let's be honest, is a very select group of patients who can tolerate Fulfirinox, um, it was 11 months. That's quite sobering. So when you're talking about a trial population where people tend to have ECOG 0 and 1 um, who tend to be fit enough and able and, and motivated to enroll on a clinical trial, and you're talking about a median OS of 11 months, uh, that's quite sobering. Now, of course, the maintenance Olaparib study Uh, It's not the same population, it's likely a subset of that population, which we're going to come to, and it's likely the most favorable subset of that population, which we'll come to. So, what do you need to know here? Well, right off the bat, you need to know that when randomized to olaparib or placebo, there was a progression-free survival, but no OS benefit in this clinical trial. There was also no improvement in health-related quality of life. So that's no improvement in survival, no improvement in health-related quality of life when given olaparib, a very costly toxic drug, against placebo. Now, you should also know that randomization was done in a 3 to 2 ratio. This is a skewed randomization. Um, we'll come to that in a future episode of this podcast. Of 3,315 patients who underwent screening, 154 underwent randomization. Let me put that to you again. Of 3,315 patients who underwent screening, 154 underwent randomization. This is really applicable to perhaps the, the absolute most favorable patients who would be eligible for full Firinox therapy. 92 got a Olaparib and 62 got placebo. So already the sample size is, is kind of kind of small per arm, and there was the PFS benefit, but there again there was no OS benefit. Although they write the data is only 46% mature. Who knows what will happen when it's 69% mature, which is the next time they plan to look at it. But I can tell you, looking at those Kaplan-Meier curves that are largely superimposable, that probably not a lot is going to happen there. And health-related quality of life is not improved by taking a lap rib. Uh, which is, interestingly, the authors interpret that in the discussion as health-related quality of life was preserved with Olaparib. That's not right. It's not preserved. It's not improved. Uh, It's failing to improve. That's the more correct language. But, you know, that's what happens when, you know, I was about to finish that sentence by saying, that's what happens when you get a medical writer to write your manuscript. But then I thought to myself, oh boy, I I didn't verify that before I started reading this paper. And then lo and behold, I look at the end of the paper we thank blah, 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 and blah, blah, blah of blank, who provided medical writing assistance with an early version of the manuscript. Yep, of course, the medical writer. The medical writer, the person who does your writing for you so that you can get the credit for writing something you didn't write. I think um, an actual physician would not write health related quality of life was preserved when the correct way to say that is it was not improved or failed to be improved in other words the right way to put this is that this drug even when we got people to stop the chemotherapy they were taking um quite successfully and randomized them to sugar pill or olaparib we failed to improve both their quality of life and their overall survival and that's how this paper's conclusion should have been written So what else can I tell you about this study? Uh, It's a randomized trial. One of the things that jumped out to me right off the bat in the methods was patients had received at least 16 weeks of continuous first-line platinum-based chemotherapy for metastatic pancreatic cancer. Um, They had to receive at least 16 weeks. Mm, That's a little bit sneaky. It's quite sneaky. So I'll tell you why. A couple things. One, um, listeners will know, that. among accepted frontline regimens in pancreatic cancer is fulfirinox, which contains oxaliplatin, which is a platinum-based regimen. Uh, another commonly used regimen is gemcitabine and nabpaclitaxel, or braxane. Uh, but that regimen does not contain platinum and thus um, would not be a regimen people could have received before entering into this study. And in fact, they did not receive that regimen prior to entering the study. Uh, in order to get full firinox, that's not a regimen people give to just anybody with pancreatic cancer. Those tend to be used um, by physicians among patients who appear to be the most sturdy patients with the best Eastern Cooperative Oncology Group performance status, who may have the fewest um, comorbidities, who may be otherwise uh, in quite good shape. Um, that's the group of people in whom we give full firinox. When full is given... Uh, it is often given in accordance with the seminal paper in the New England Journal of Medicine, Fulfirinox versus gemcitabine metastatic pancreatic cancer. That trial proscribed six months of therapy um, for people in whom it could be tolerated without progressive disease um, who were having a response. Um, this paper allows people to be enrolled after four months, which is two months shorter. Um, and as I think I will come to a little bit later. Um, what, what they're probably actually doing is they're taking many people who could have easily tolerated two additional months of fulfirinox therapy and getting the doctor to stop giving them that therapy so they can come on this study. In fact, the median number of months of therapy you had had when you enrolled in the study was five. Um, additionally, in reality, in many practices, a lot of people continue therapy um, almost indefinitely. And, and we've all seen people getting 17 18 months of therapy uh, with pancreatic cancer, who happened to be doing well um, without progressive disease and happened to be not having appreciable toxicity. So, I think one question off the bat is whether or not it is even appropriate um, to enroll people who've only gotten four months of full Firinox when, um, per prior protocols, they should have at least gotten six. In actual practice, maybe they'd have gotten even more. Um, and here, the median, of course, is five. The next thing that jumps out at me. Uh, because progression-free survival is the thing people are going to hang their hat on, we should know that, of course, they're assessing for progression-free survival every eight weeks, um, for 40 weeks, and every 12 weeks until progression. Um, you know, if you want to find differences, the easiest way to find difference is to use surrogate endpoints and then keep testing for those surrogate endpoints over and over and over again until differences accrue. Ah, One thing jumped out at me in the results. Among patients with measurable disease at baseline, The complete response rate assessed by Blinded Independent Central Review was 23% in the Olaparib group and 12% in the placebo group. Hmm, that's interesting. 23% response rate from Olaparib and 12% in placebo. 12% response rate with sugar pill for people with measurable disease at baseline. How's that possible? In prior analyses by Tannock and colleagues looking at placebo-controlling arms of randomized controlled trials, we know as a general rule, the response rate of using Resist 1.1 in placebo controlled arms ranges between 2 and 7% with an average, I think about 24 but this is all from memory. I haven't looked at that in a long time. I would say that 12% response rate on placebo is a bit high, but why do they have that in this trial? I think it's a clue. I think what it's actually telling you is that um, you're enrolling people who have just been getting full Firinox. Um, after four months when you you stop their full Firinox, you can put them on this study when probably in reality you would have continued it. Um, and that there's a fraction of those people who that chemotherapy was active and doing a good job of shrinking the cancer in which that chemotherapy is still exerting some activity down the road, such that they're continuing to respond to the chemo they gotten many, many weeks prior, even though they're now only getting sugar pill. So in fact, probably a group of people on this clinical trial, on the placebo arm, would surely have had deepening tumor response had you continued them on full Firinox, probably even higher than the 12%. Um, so I think that makes this placebo-controlled part of this trial a quite problematic. The next thing that jumped out at me in the results... When you look at that overall survival curve, you see two curves that, you know, I printed mine in black and white, and if I didn't see the labels on the end of the curve, I I couldn't tell you which one's which. I don't know which is the treatment, which is the control arm, because they're that kind of superimposed. Hazard ratio 0.91, confidence interval 0.6 to 1.5, you know, huge confidence interval crossing one. Um, The median overall survival in this study is, of course, 18 months. So, you know, I try to think to myself... um, and, of course, there's no difference between placebo and, oxali, but placebo and olaparib here because olaparib doesn't improve overall survival in this trial. So I try to think to myself, to get fulfirinox up front, we're already talking about a select group of patients with pancreatic cancer. Now all these patients are ascertained for germline BRCA status, and there's some subgroup that's there. And then there's a group of patients who, after four months of therapy, they do not have progressive disease on fulfirinox. And they're also doing well enough that their doctor is comfortable by saying, like, look, okay, we're going to um, stop the chemotherapy and randomize you to olaparib or placebo. Maybe they have some side effects from oxali, maybe not. Um, this group of people is put on a drug that doesn't improve survival, and the control arm participants live 18 months. So, you know, can you estimate what fraction of the full Firinox patients that would be at the outset? And, of course, you know, this is very speculative, but if you look at that full Firinox survival curve, you know, I told you the median was 11 months. And there's a point on the curve maybe around the 20th percentile or so maybe a little bit lower maybe a little bit higher Uh, it's visually no it's actually maybe the maybe 15th percentile the 15th percentile um, best 15th percentile lived 18 months or more what percentile of for fulfirinox patients had a median survival of 18 months you see what i'm saying of all the people who enrolled on the fulfirinox study what percentile of patients would you have to draw a cut line so that if you later randomized them to placebo, you would have gotten an 18-month survival? In other words, what fraction of the fulfirinox versus gemcitabine patients would have been eligible for something like the Olaparib placebo patients? And I told you out front that they're screening 3,000 people to get 154 people. So there's obviously this heavy sort of selection bias going in. And when I look at it, I think you're going to be talking something like maybe 30th percentile, 30% of the patients, something like that, fulfirinox. So in other words, we're not talking about something that applies to the average person getting full Firinox who may have rapid progression. We're talking about something that applies to the percent, to the best 30% of people who's eligible for fear, full Firinox and then add in the fact that they also have to have germline BRCA. So you're talking about an intervention that has a very, very, very small group of people who were already doing disproportionately better than the average person with their tumor type who will enroll on your study. Okay, I think that's worth noting, and one of the reasons that's worth noting is that kind of fact and the fact that the placebo response rate is 12% is kind of making the argument that probably only getting a median of five months of chemotherapy before enrolling this trial is probably inadequate. This probably is a group of people... Who is are doing quite well. Their median age, of course, is 57. Their ECOG is 70%, and the Olaparib arm, zero. 60% of the placebo arm, um, zero. Oh, look at that. Little imbalance in the ECOG. You know, that's what happens when you run these very, these trials, these two small trials. And it's three to one randomization. I got to come back to that some other day. That's another foolish thing to do. Okay, so their ECOG is phenomenal. Their age is much, much younger uh, than the average age. Um, They have only gotten five months of platinum-based therapy when they are almost surely in the top 30th percentile of people um, who were even eligible for Fulfirinox. So these are probably almost the fittest, um, most slow-growing biology patients. Probably could have gotten much, much more Fulfirinox had the doctor really pushed it. Certainly, there's a fraction of people who are probably having deepening responses to platinum and could have had even deeper responses had they pushed it. As evident by a placebo response rate higher than almost anything I've seen described in the literature um, from placebo response rates. And again, I cite that paper by Tannock at all. So I think you have kind of a problematic inclusion criteria. Then, of course, you randomize them to sugar pill, um, which perhaps is... Unjust or unethical in this situation, um, and probably not consistent with what, what doctors would do, or Olaparib, and you follow them out. And of course, here's the, the big kicker there's no clinically meaningful change from baseline, as noted by the ERTC, QLQ, C30, Global Health Related Quality of Life Score, in either group. And there's no significant difference in the overall change from baseline between the groups. So there is no quality of life benefit. There's this in the discussion. The POLO trial was a global trial, and when the trial was designed, six-month treatment for full was standard of care. And yet, um, they say that, and yet, of course, they're willing to accept people after four months of treatment with full who many people would have given the six months. Um, Okay, eligible patients couldn't undergo randomization after at least 16 weeks of chemotherapy. No maximum length of first-line chemotherapy is mandated. Uh, Blah, blah, blah. Uh, They say one more thing that jumped out at me. Oh, overall survival may be confounded by subsequent therapies, including that of nine patients in the placebo group, 15% who went on receive a PARP inhibitor after disease progression. Oh, gosh, come on. Um, you you have a drug that you're saying is a giant crumbler. This is the kind of drug that crumbles giants. It's a giant crumbling drug, okay? Home run drug. And you mean to tell me that a 15% rate of crossover to uh, Olaparib down the road is enough to wash away any survival effects of this drug. Come on, get out of here. Implausible. Let me say this about Crossover. I've talked about this before on this podcast, but let me tell you something. When you have a randomized controlled trial, which is the primary efficacy study of a drug that has never hitherto shown efficacy in a tumor type, i.e., an improvement in a patient-centered outcome, uh, you do not, and 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 that drug is not standard of care for that disease. Okay, um, you do not want crossover. You want to run a clinic, clinical trial of this drug uh, without crossover to the agent to see if there's a survival benefit. You want to measure survival on the back end. Um, maybe. Containing, comparing it against placebo is unethical in this case, as you, many doctors would have wanted to continue chemotherapy in these patients, and they probably would have seen deepening responses in the chemotherapy arm. And maybe actually Olaparib would have lost OS benefit. It would have been decremental. Okay, be that as it may. Why would you do crossover? It's a bit of a Pascal's wager. Philosophy majors will know what I'm talking about. But it's a bit of a Pascal's wager why you would want to do it. Um, and I'm not talking about Pascal Soro. I'm talking about uh, the, the, the philosopher Pascal. Um, it's a Pascal's wager. By that I mean, you, can, you have a few choices. You can either use crossover in this trial when you shouldn't use crossover, or you, sh- or you could not use it. Let's go through the possibilities. You use crossover, and there's a survival benefit in your favor. You win. You say, even though patients in the control arm were exposed to the drug down the road, we still found a survival benefit from the routine upfront administration. Therefore, use our drug. You have crossover, and you don't find a survival benefit. You still win. Because after all, you would have seen a survival benefit had it not been for that pesky 15% crossover to our active drug. Come on, people. Of course we would have seen it. You win both ways. Now let's say you didn't allow crossover. You didn't allow crossover with the survival benefit. You win, although the criticism of the control arm will still be present. You didn't allow crossover, and there is no survival benefit. You lose. You lose in that way. You don't get your drug to market. So in fact, the, the Pascal wager here is to have crossover, because that way, you win either way. You get an OS benefit, you win. And you don't get an OS benefit, you blame it on the crossover, which is the confounding variable that you yourself introduced into the study, okay? It's very ironic, but it's a game that the companies play. I mean, it, this is—the uh, reason I, I I read this study— I mean, this is a study that is— um, it's not engineered to give us truth about a drug and whether or not it helps people. This is a study, you read this study, you cannot help but conclude it is designed to most favorably um, get a, it is designed to get a positive result. I mean, let's, let's talk about the endpoint. As a general rule in cancer therapy, when there is actually a maintenance setting, which I'm not sure there is in this cancer, but when there is a maintenance setting, which there is in other tumor types... And you talk about introducing a drug into the maintenance setting in a space you hitherto did not give chemotherapy to patients. You didn't give them a drug. You're imposing a few burdens, of course, the side effect and cost burden of the intervention, but you're also imposing something called therapeutic burden. You're making somebody take a pill when they otherwise wouldn't take a pill. And if you do such maintenance trials with active drugs, the fact that you're gonna push out progression or the time to the next drug It's almost a a truism. Of course, active drugs may delay progression, but that's not the question. The question is whether or not by taking those drugs for all that many months in maintenance, you live longer as a result versus if you had taken those drugs on the back end at progression as you otherwise were doing. All maintenance or continuation trials of therapy must use overall survival as the primary endpoint. Here's how Bashal and I say it in our Nature Review's clinical oncology paper. We write, When a fixed course of therapy is extended, patients are subjected to greater biological and financial toxicity and an increased therapeutic burden, and we must ask whether PFS benefit justifies these harms. Unsurprisingly, as a general rule, continuation of active anti-cancer therapy slows disease progression and can improve PFS if the sample size is large enough. However, if these benefits do not ultimately yield OS gains, the strategy would result in additional toxicity and cost to the patient and society and no real benefit. Indeed, in oncology, the precedent is to not prolong therapy that does not increase lifespan been. We only use four to six cycles of chemo to treat small cell lung cancer because the PFS advantage that is associated with extended chemotherapy does not translate to an OS benefit. In addition, the use of serum levels of CA125 to guide systemic retreatment of ovarian cancer is universally condemned as this approach increases the duration of chemotherapy without extending survival. And yet, this principle is not extended to trials like this. This is a maintenance trial. The only acceptable endpoint is OS. By doing this, are you going to improve OS? But, you know, of course, the more you look at the study, you wonder if this is really a maintenance trial. This is a trial of people who are responding to platinum treatment, um, who are abruptly, perhaps inappropriately, halted on that platinum treatment, who, in whom, despite that halt, continue to have deepening response in 12% of placebo group patients, um, who probably should have gotten more platinum, who are getting a Olaparib instead, which is still unable to improve their overall survival. And that's not due to crossover. Crossover is, of course, the confounding variable built in by the authors so that they can never lose. Well, not built in by the authors, built in by the the sponsors. The author, of course, is is the medical writer who is credited at the end of the paper. That's the author, of course. Um, So, I don't know, what are my takeaway points here? Um, I mean, I guess the first thing that has to be said is um, Giant Crumbler this is not. I mean, I don't know. Reasonable people may disagree on the use of language, but I think most of us say we have a drug that will crumble the giant that your tumor is. I say, oh boy, you're going to crumble it. Well, how much longer does the drug let me live? Oh, oh, it doesn't improve survival at all. What? That doesn't sound like a giant crumble to me. Um, so I think that's probably an incorrect statement. I think the statement about plunder... I mean, it's actually correct. I mean, this is a way to engineer market share where done, didn't, one didn't exist. It is criminal to prescribe expensive toxic treatments that don't make patients with a highly fatal disease live longer or live better. Are we encouraging plunder? I think he's right. I mean, that's it. Dr. Eisenhower writes, it makes me feel both depressed and frustrated that this type of hyperbolic statement is made about the results like those of Polo trial. I don't know how the argument about X over obscuring OS gains can be regurgitated as a reflex excuse. A cult-like belief at work here, and I think she's right. It's a it's a calculated move to introduce crossover, um, to not prohibit crossover uh, in subsequent lines of therapy, so that the authors can excuse whatever result they get. Um, so, huh? Where to start? Um, is this practice changing? No. Do I think long-term follow-up will change the survival outcome? No. Um, it's almost, you know, at first I thought that maybe an OS benefit later might change my mind, but now you really do worry that this is actually inferior to probably continuing platinum therapy in those patients, at least as proscribed in the original Fulfirinox study. I mean, we're not even talking about what people are actually doing in practice, but at least the protocol is six months, as this allowed people at four months, and certainly got people with a median of five months, who probably would have gotten a lot more because this is probably the the absolute best 30th percentile of people enrolling on that study. Um, so, I mean, not practice changing, problematic endpoint, creating maintenance where maintenance didn't exist, shouldn't lead to drug approval, three to two randomizations, sample size too small for my likings. Manipulated trial says nothing useful, doesn't help people, furthers a company's product. I mean, if you work in the industry, this is kind of genius. And if you care about patients, it's kind of criminal. Um, it's it's that simple. Um, I think the solutions here are, of course, I want to highlight. I mean, of course, we should try to understand these trials. But I, I don't see how you can look at trials like this and continue to believe um, that allowing the design, conduct, interpretation, writing, dissemination of clinical studies solely to the industry is a logical way to do this. I mean... I think the design and conduct has to shift to impartial groups. People need to think about trials critically. Design like this is deeply problematic. Human beings are participating in research that doesn't really further important clinical questions. So I don't like it. I don't like polo. Next up, apalutamide for metastatic castrate-sensitive prostate cancer. The Titan Investigators. Doesn't get bigger than Titans. First we had giant crumblers, and now we have Titans. Tis the age of giants, and we are merely the Lilliputians. So, I just want to start with the number one point about Titan. We thank blah 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 and Dr. Blah-blah-blah of Parexel for editorial assistance with an earlier version of the manuscript. Parexel, I see that name from time to time. I believe that's the, that's the little group out there that continually snaps up former FDA reviewers once they finish their stint at the FDA and they switch teams to the other side and join the industry or consult for the industry, which, as Dr. Jeff Bien and I found in BMJ, is quite common. It's the predominant occupation of people who leave the FDA per their own stated affiliations from things like LinkedIn and other sources like that. All right, so what do you need to know about Titan? Um, This is an androgen receptor, antagonist. Uh, And this is being tested in metastatic castrate-sensitive prostate cancer. And the endpoint is overall survival. And that is all good. And in fact, of course, they hit that endpoint because we know the androgen receptor is important in prostate cancer. And we know that the endpoint of overall survival is important. So that's that's all fine and good. Why do I raise this study? I raised this study because I think what is interesting to me are the dates during which they enrolled participants. So between December fifteenth, 2015 and July twenty fifth, 2017, we enrolled over a 1,000 people in this clinical trial. But what did we know in the summer of 2014 in ASCO? There's a little study that was later published in August of 2015 by Sweeney and colleagues, And it was entitled Chemo-Hormonal Therapy and Metastatic Hormone-Sensitive Prostate Cancer. The exact same setting. And the authors randomized patients with two ADT plus six cycles of docetaxel or ADT alone. And what did they find? They found improved overall survival with the addition of docetaxel. So they found that and they announced that at ASCO. And that was presumably practice changing. And then about a year later, they published a paper And then, a few months later, the Titan investigators decided to study apalutamide. So, what did they do? They enrolled patients with the exact same indication. And of course, they were aware of the charted study, so surely they took that into account. And lo and behold, they did. It's right there in the introduction. In the past few years, results from several large randomized phase 3 trials have shown longer survival, particularly those with high volume disease, per charted standards of high volume, when ADT was combined with abiraterone or docetaxel. And they say in their methods that we're willing to take people on our study who've already gotten the now standard of care, which was docetaxel plus ADT. Previous treatment for prostate cancer was limited to docetaxel use for a maximum of six cycles and ADT for no more than six months. And then you could enroll on Titan. And in fact, the majority of people in Titan had high-volume disease per charted. 62% of patients had high-volume disease. But what percent of patients had previously received docetaxel, which was... The standard of care per charted a year before the trial started enrolling, and certainly when the trial enrolled, and the answer is 11%. So, did patients in Titan, which started enrollment in December 2015, receive standard of care in accordance with charted, which was published in August of that year? And the answer is, not quite. So, is Titan a trial designed to answer an important clinical question, or is it designed to secure marketing authorization for a costly drug? that's the real question now the authors tried to explain this in the discussion where they write for example although all the patients acknowledge the survival benefit of docetaxel during informed consent and here I have to take a little aside oh they acknowledged it did it so you're saying that the investigators sat the patient down and said look before you participate in this study there's something you must know you could get docetaxel and then you could still come into this study and you know that docetaxel improves overall survival by a fairly substantive amount, particularly in people with high volume disease, as you have, and then you could still enroll on this study and you would potentially could get an even greater benefit from the novel agent. Would you want to do that? Or would you want to turn down an established proven therapy that's known to improve overall survival and just say no and join this study, even though you could do that and still join this study. Now, you sure you want to do that? Oh, you really think they had that kind of conversation? Hmm, interesting. Okay. Despite the fact that they acknowledged it, and what they mean by acknowledge is it probably was in some fine print and some voluminous documentation that nobody really reads. Um, I say probably, I don't know for sure. Uh, only 10.7% had received docetaxel therapy before trial enrollment. This probably reflects perceived patient fitness for docetaxel. Oh. Get out of here. Come on. I mean, when you say things in your manuscript, writers for prex, I mean, the people who actually wrote the paper. Um, come on. Don't think the audience who reads these papers is like grossly unable to see through clearly incorrect statements. Come on. Perce- so in other words, what you're saying is people didn't think these participants were fit enough for docetaxel. What are two things that suggest to me that's not accurate? One, the Eastern Cooperative Oncology Group performance status of 63 to 66 percent of patients in this study was zero. Their median age was 68 and 69. So they were below 70, and their ECOG was pretty fit. And number two, the control arm placebo survival. At 24 months, 73 percent of people on placebo were alive and well. So you mean to tell me that these patients weren't fit enough for docetaxel? Mm-hmm. They they weren't fit enough, even though you're enrolling them in 2015, and they have a really good ECOG status, and they have a median survival. And at 24 months, 77% are alive and well, and they're not fit enough. In contrast, Ian Tanock and colleagues in the New England Journal of Medicine in TAX 327, they enrolled patients between the years 2000 and 2004, and they enrolled patients of the exact same median age, 68, 69. of the patients they enrolled were over the age of 75, and they randomized patients to docetaxel or mitoxantrone, and those patients had a median survival of 15 months, and they were somehow fit enough to receive docetaxel, but now you're saying your patients, two decades later, who are of the same age, with a far superior overall survival, are somehow not fit enough for docetaxel. I think that's actually quite implausible. So in other words, I think they are fit enough for docetaxel. Many of them should have received docetaxel, and that would have been in accordance with charted. And I do not believe that they possibly could have had an adequate informed consent that told them they still could have done that and then gone on to this trial, and then they chose not to do that. I find that to be kind of baffling. And then the other figure that I would draw your attention to is the subgroup analysis on page eight of the manuscript, subgroup analysis and overall survival that looks at prior docetaxel use. It has, hmm, look at that. Where's my interaction coefficient? Well, it visually appears to be that prior docetaxel use identified a subgroup of patients for whom there is no additional benefit of apalutamide and that is kind of supported by Enzimet, the accompanying study with enzalutamide, where the authors, to their credit, gave a whole lot more early dosetaxel um, and and did a whole lot better there. And they ha- also have a subgroup analysis of overall survival figure two of Enzimet, where they actually do report the interaction coefficient of 0.04, which would be a significant p-value for interaction. Uh, so in other words, early dosetaxel in that study is significantly associated with failing to find a benefit of androgen receptor blockade in this setting and here it strongly looks to be as if that's the case so what's the takeaway of titan well titan and giant crumbling have a lot in common when you want to win a clinical trial and you want to really get a costly expensive novel drug to market and you know your medical writer is going to help you smooth out the message downstream, you can spend your time concocting whatever trial design you want that is assuredly give you the outcome you need. And in this case, what it means is that even though you knew that docetaxel therapy was a life-prolonging therapy, you somehow managed to not give that to many, many people who almost surely were fit enough to receive said therapy, um, and instead, you gave them your drug, and you found your drug exerted a benefit, no doubt, um, but uh, they were deprived of a standard of care, and when you looked in subgroup analysis for the group of people in whom that standard of care was actually given, um, you find that that subgroup looks like they really are having a different um, effect from your agent, suggesting that perhaps your agent has no additional benefit to the standard of care when you actually start enrolling patients. I think that's problematic. I think it's a very problematic trial i think both polo as we talked about and titan are problematic studies i think they are not really answering important clinical questions i think the enzimet trial is um you know much better done i mean just just much better done um they actually did um you know allow people to get uh early taxol. the question of course facing enzimet is that You know, it looks like Enzymed is being driven by the people with low-volume disease, who probably were the ones who were not getting the docetaxel because people didn't think there was that benefit of docetaxel with a low-volume disease, but... You know, that that interaction really wasn't absolutely clear and charted, and maybe they do actually benefit um, fr- in the low-volume setting uh, because there appeared to be no real interaction by volume and charted, although the statistical significance was met in one group and not the other. So one wonders a little bit about an ENZA method. If people hadn't backed off docetaxel in low-volume, if ENZA would have had that same benefit— um, but that's another question to ponder, uh, and then Chris, Chris Sweeney and colleagues say there's more information there, and and so I'm gonna let I'm gonna let the enzalutamide study go. The apalutamide study, I think, is clearly, um, you know, who are they kidding? Come on, um, they have such low rates of prior docetaxel use. It's um, really quite ridiculous. Um, I think um, the real question is, who is re- who are who is reviewing these studies in these journals? Who who is allowing these studies to be printed and nobody commenting on these sort of very obvious pitfalls. Um, I think we have a very problematic scenario in oncology. All right. On that positive note, we're going to turn to my presentation from ASCO. And last on plenary session, I'm going to take you through the lecture I gave at ASCO. This was part of the educational session, and it was on Expedited Program Use in Patient Experience and Clinical Trials. It was a real honor to be invited to give this lecture. And a dedicated listener asked me if I could make it available to you, the listening plenary session audience. And I, so I said, why not? So I'll give you a version of the lecture I gave. I'm going to go through my slides and give you the lecture as if, as if you were the audience. Um, of course, it's a little bit different than what I actually set up there because I was really restricted for time and tried to keep things short and sweet in an echoey room. But with you, the listener, I'll be able to take a little bit more of a dive and, um, and hopefully touch on some topics we didn't get to touch upon. So I started by saying the title of my lecture is Expedited Program Use and Patient Experience in Clinical Trials. It's a title about as exciting as Ending Medical Reversal, which I've heard a lot of feedback on over the years. People don't like that title. Well, you know what? We liked it, okay? Okay, forgive us. The next book is called Malignant. Okay, I learned my lesson. It's a little bit more punchy. Ah, I started with this disclosure slide. I do not consult for or receive food or drink from the pharmaceutical industry insurers or other for-profit vendors in the healthcare space. And then one person clapped clapped for that. Um, but the rest of the audience was silent. Then I gave my real disclosure slide where I talked about Ending Medical Reversal, a book that has brought me great riches. This podcast, which I provide to you, I hope um, you get something out of it. A uh, column I write for Medscape called Prasad on Medicine. And uh, that our research on low-value care is funded by the Lauren John Arnold Foundation. Okay, the first slide says patient's experience. So, you know, I really wanted to make it clear right at the start of this talk that patients care about only two things, okay? They want drugs that let them live longer or live better. That's all they want. And when people say, oh, well, I want to have less pain, that's part of living better. When people say, I want to live long enough so I'll be around for some event in the future, that's living longer. Everything else is either a way to measure these things, like health-related quality of life, um, or they are a stand-in, a proxy, a surrogate for one of these two things. But that's it. It's all living longer or living better and nothing else. Then I added, there are two other things patients want. They want timely access to drugs that help them do these things. They don't want to wait around. You know, all things being equal, sooner is better. And on the other hand, sort of on the other pole... Um, they want confidence these drugs help, some assurance that they actually do what they claim to do or that what we believe they do. Okay, so, so I think there are four points here. Live longer, live better, timely access, and confidence. And we're going to come back to that theme. So I was asked to talk about the expedited programs offered by the U.S. Food and Drug Administration. I put a slide up that said fast track designation, breakthrough designation, accelerated approval, and priority review. These are the expedited pathways. And I guess in future podcasts, I'm happy to go through all of these in depth. But Um, many of them have implications for drug makers. Uh, Few of them have implications for patients, I think. And I think the key program that has implications for patients is the accelerated approval pathway, and that's what I focused on. I made it very clear at the outset of my talk, and I hope listeners of this podcast know because I hope I've said it on this podcast many, many times. There are two types of approval granted by the U.S. Food and Drug Administration. There are accelerated or provisional approvals, And there are regular approvals or full approvals or traditional marketing authorizations. Those are the two categories, accelerated or regular. What do you need to know about these two? Accelerated. Accelerated approvals are made on the basis of a surrogate thought, quote, reasonably likely to predict, end quote. Accelerated approvals are made in a setting for which there is a post-marketing study to verify clinical benefit, okay? And I just want to make one side point here that I didn't make in the talk people are talking about lartruvo or olaratumumab which came on the market based on a phase two study that found an overall survival benefit that was not confirmed in a phase three study and they said this is how accelerated approval should work a drug that seemed promising got access to the market but then upon further review um, was withdrawn from the market when it actually didn't help people i would add there's one asterisk there accelerated approval is for a statistically robust effect on a surrogate endpoint thought reasonably likely to predict. So the uncertainty is in the endpoint, not in the statistics. L'Artruvo was based on a solid endpoint, a certain endpoint, survival, but the trial was not designed or powered to comment on survival. The statistical side of it was the uncertain side. That's not what accelerated approval is about. If you want to make accelerated approval about an uncertain statistical plan, And a robust endpoint, you have really expanded accelerated approval in a way it was not intended for, in a way that my reading of the statutory language does not permit, in a way that is being promoted by friends of cancer research in a white paper, uh, promoted by other people who want to bring products to market. Um, But I think that's a mistake, and it's actually a very bad thing. Uh, We can talk about the limitations of having a statistically robust effect on a surrogate endpoint, as I will in this lecture. But when you start talking about having an uncertain effect on a hard endpoint, you really entered a whole new arena. And I think this is something that we could talk about at length. Uh, But it's probably a way in which you will have a lot of false leads. Okay, what's regular approval? Regular approval is granted for drugs that help patients live longer or live better. Or an established surrogate for one of these things. Established is in quotes. That's in the FDA's language. No further efficacy data is typically required for regular approvals. Once they're on the market, they can be rescinded for further information around safety, but they will almost never be rescinded based on confirmatory studies that fail to confirm benefit on more important clinical endpoints, which is living longer and living better. What is the landscape of all cancer drug approvals look like? So I cited the paper by Chul Kim and I in Mayo Clinic Proceedings in 2016. We looked at 83 oncologic indications over five years, and we found about a third were accelerated approval and two-thirds were regular approval. And this breakdown more or less holds true across different periods of time at the U.S. Food and Drug Administration's Oncology Drug Products Division. Among these approvals... Two-thirds of them were surrogate endpoints, so all of the accelerated approvals and about half of the regular approvals, so two-thirds were surrogate endpoints, and about one-third was overall survival patient reported outcomes or quality of life. So again, one-third accelerated, two-thirds regular, two-thirds surrogate, and one-third overall survival patient reported outcomes or quality of life. Okay, that's the breakdown. And then finally, if you were accelerated approval, you were invariably approved based on a surrogate, with the exception of L'Artruvo, which is a whole other can of worms, and that surrogate was mostly response rate. If you were a regular approval and you approved based on a surrogate, which is true for about half of regular approvals, it was a mix of response rate and progression-free survival. And if you're a regular approval and you were approved based on a clinical endpoint that actually matters to patients, it was overall survival, patient report outcomes or quality of life. Okay, it's just that simple. So that's the landscape. Then I took a little aside to do a bit of teaching there at ASCO, which is always difficult when you have only 15 minutes. Side note. I didn't say this in lecture, but side note. It is a mistake to have 15-minute lectures at these presentations, okay? Um, I understand that there are many, many people who would like to speak at said lecture. I believe that merely liking to speak is no reason that people should listen to you speak. You should be able to give a good and convincing talk, which in my experience is true for just a tiny fraction of people who get up on a stage. So I would rather take the time And give more time to people who are speaking clearly, concisely, factually, and informatively. And less time to people who are giving muddled, mumbling, incoherent, illogical, unsound, or hyped presentations. Okay, so that's what I want to see at at these national meetings. I think you have to screen the speakers just like you screen abstracts um, for both the content of the speech and the quality of the lecture. Um, People are coming to hear a lecture. They don't want to hear something delivered that is read off a transcript. Uh, They don't want to hear something that's given boringly. And the last thing I'd say. And the reason I say all this is because by virtue of the fact that there are many, many people speaking, often of varying levels of quality, people are relegated to giving very, very short talks. Now, giving a short talk is fine when you use the vernacular that everyone is using. When you say things that everyone else is saying, reiterating that in a concise way is very much fine. But when you're trying to educate somebody about a concept and change the way they think about a topic, you cannot do that in 15 minutes. You need a long period of time. You need a series of lectures. You need to teach people concepts and then show them how those concepts are relevant to what they're thinking about. Okay, back to my talk here. My rantorial is over. Okay, so then the next slide here, I say, how do you judge a surrogate endpoint? And I show the paper that I did with some colleagues from the NCI in 2015. It's one of the last times I did Most of the work by my, no, it's one of the last times uh, that I took a lead in in writing a paper, Um, and it's called The Strength of Association Between Surrogate Endpoints and Survival in Oncology. It was published in JAMA Internal Medicine in 2015. This was the first of now two umbrella meta-analyses that look at every single surrogate validation study in the entire biomedical literature. The more recent and more comprehensive study is by Allison Haslam and colleagues in the European Journal of Cancer. What do you need to know? So imagine you wanted to see what is the strength of the correlation between progression-free survival and overall survival in metastatic frontline breast cancer. Let's say that's your question. You want to know, can I hang my hat on PFS in metastatic frontline breast cancer? Is it reliable? Do drugs that improve PFS later improve OS? That's my question. How do you do that? How do you answer that question? You need to do something called a trial-level validation study. What does that mean? The first thing you do is you collect every randomized control trial of an experimental agent, like the agent you care about, that has ever been conducted in the literature. Let's say, hypothetically, there are only two studies, and that's what I show on the slide. One study in the control arm, PFS was 3.4 months, in the interventional arm, it was 6.4. OS was later found to be 18 months in the control arm and 21 months in the experimental arm. Those are the medians. And then in another study, let's say there's a second randomized trial on this topic. PFS was one month and two months, and OS was 12 months and 13 months. Okay, so I just give two hypothetical studies. Let's imagine that in this space, there's only been two studies. Obviously, you don't want it to be two studies. You want it to be many, many, many studies. You're looking at a correlation coefficient at the end of the day, and those are better when there's more data. And of course, when you do a plot of two data points, it's going to look quite good. Of course, it's going to look like a line because there's two points. Two points make a line. But, you know, this is for the sake of illustration. So what do you do? For each of these trials, you plot a data point. Every data point on a scatter plot is one trial. And on one axis, you plot the delta change in PFS or the hazard ratio change in PFS. Okay. On the other axis, you plot the delta overall survival or the hazard ratio overall survival. What you want to plot is the change in PFS between the two arms and the change in OS between the two arms on the other axis. And each trial is a point on the graph and then you perform linear regression and the correlation coefficient or coefficient of determination tells you the strength of the correlation and a coefficient of determination which is an r squared of course literally means literally means what percent of variability in the y outcome is explained by variability in the x outcome and i know you all know that because you've 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 studied epidemiology so You are asking what percent of the variability in what I care about is explained by variability in the surrogate between arms of clinical trials where experimental agents like the agent I care about has been tested, okay? This is trial level validation. If you think about this concept a great deal, it will make crystal clear sense to you that this is exactly the way you should validate it. You want to know, when I give the patient a drug and when I drive up that PFS, will I later drive up that OS? That's exactly the question you face when you're asking, should I approve this drug, okay? This is precisely the analysis you should do. Every other analysis that people continually do in this space is wrong. They do prognostic studies. They do... uh, other types of validation studies that are missing the point, that don't answer the relevant question, and they don't understand what they're doing. They have not looked at the validation literature. Um, They are often perhaps even unqualified to do those studies because they haven't thought about this broadly. Um, It's it's bad. You get a lot of content-specific experts who work only in one tumor type, and they want to validate their favorite biomarker, which may be MRD or whatever you want it to be, And they don't know anything about surrogate validation, and they don't know how to study it correctly, and so they don't know how to do this properly. Okay, so once you plot this, every data point is a trial, and you're asking what percent of the variability in survival is explained by variability in the surrogate between the arms of studies. You plot the data points, you perform linear regression, and you get a correlation coefficient. The German ICWIG group has issued guidance over what the lower bound of the 95% confidence interval over the correlation coefficient should be to be considered strong, medium, or weak, okay? Those appear to be stringent, but if you start to think about what percent of the variability in the Y outcome is explained by variability in the X, X outcome at each of those categories, you'll find that I think they're actually quite reasonable. That when you get strong correlations, the majority of the variability in what you care about is explained by variability in the surrogate. And if you get to the point where that's not the case, you may be approving drugs that don't really do what you think they do. Okay, so this is why I think the ICWIG group has provided good guidelines, and those are the cut points we use in all of our studies. Okay, this is a bit of an aside, and I think if you're really interested in this topic, you have to read a lot of papers in this topic. Next slide. Next slide. Next slide is the paper by Allison Haslam, where she went through every single time anyone has ever done this in any tumor type in any setting. And we plot what does the landscape of these correlations generally look like and we do it for agent, for adjuvant for locally advanced for immunotherapy and we do it in the metastatic setting and this is the key setting because most of the drug approvals in this country in all countries most of the drugs that come to market in cancer medicine are in the metastatic advanced or unresectable setting and that's where we see the most correlation coefficients and they generally are are low and medium strength they're mostly low second place medium and very few high And low and medium is considered by Aquig to not be suitable for clinical decision-making or regulatory purposes. So it really is a rather sobering look at the surrogates we use in oncology. You know, it would seem intuitive and obvious that drugs that shrink tumors uh, and drugs that slow them from growing would help you live longer or live better. That seems intuitive or obvious. It seems less intuitive and less obvious when you start to think about what does it mean to have a response. It's not just shrinking your tumor. It's shrinking your tumor beyond an arbitrary 30 um, what does it mean for growth? It's an arbitrary 20% for PFS. When you start to think about the arbitrariness of the cutoff, the fact that people don't feel differently right around that cut point, the fact that the cut point was developed largely for operational reasons, and if you're interested in that, you got to read some old papers by Zubrod and by Mortel. When you start to think about those factors, I think it becomes more obvious that these surrogates may not capture the full effect of the drug on a person's body. And then you also start to think about all the off-target effects and all the side effects and all the sort of... Concomitant and uh, and downstream effects that some of these drugs may have on somebody, um, and you start to see these correlations weaken. Of course, okay. Next slide. So. I come back to this accelerated approval. I stated at the outset that the FDA says that accelerated approvals are made for surrogates thought reasonably likely to predict. I show a graph that maps what happened when Chul Kim and I, in that Mayo Clinic proceedings paper in 2016, looked at all of the surrogates that were used for accelerated approval. We asked, how many of them have a strong level one trial level validation coefficient? And the answer was, poof, none of them. And how many of those surrogates had never, ever, ever been studied? In any published paper that has ever, ever documented the strength of that surrogate on the outcomes patients actually care about, and that was just over half of them at 14, that was the most common thing we found, was that that surrogate for that tumor type and that setting had never, ever, ever been investigated as a surrogate endpoint. So, reasonably likely to predict, practically, in the real world, what that means is somebody at FDA had the gut feeling that this surrogate is reasonably likely to predict what we care about. It doesn't mean anything more than gut feeling, in, in, more, in slightly more than half of cases. And I actually think reasonable people can disagree on as to whether or not that's good enough, because the statutory language is quite vague. So I think that's actually, you know, that's not the end of the world. We'll come back to what might make that the end of the world in a little bit. But that in and of itself, that's not the worst thing. Next slide. Next slide is a little gotcha slide. It's a bit of a gotcha. A few years ago, I was on Twitter and I saw somebody tweeted out a slide that an FDA statistician had posted at a workshop. And I captured that with a screen grab because that's what you do when you see good information. And here's what that FDA slide said, which I showed to the audience. For regular approval, now let's talk about regular approval. Um, to use a surrogate endpoint that is considered, quote, unquote, no, the slide doesn't say that, but for regular approval, you know, we'd say that surrogate endpoints have to be established, quote, established. What does that mean? And then this is what the slide says, quote, Trial level surrogacy is needed. High association. Example R squared, 0.8 between treatment effect based on surrogate endpoint and treatment effect based on clinical benefit endpoint. It also says, trial-level association derived from a model using survival experience among responders irrespective of treatment is not adequate. Wow, I couldn't have said it better myself, and that's what I was trying to teach you in that first part, that you need trial-level surrogacy between arms, experimental and control, where each randomized control trial provides one data point, looking at a high association between treatment effect based on the surrogate and treatment effect based on clinical benefit. That's exactly what I said. And they're using a cutoff in here in the example that's not too far from what ICWIG says, so it's quite good. So I like this slide. So FDA is saying that when you do a level one trial level validation study and have a high correlation coefficient, that means established, more or less. That's how I interpret this slide next. So I say, what did Chil Kim and I find in the 2016 paper when we looked at all the regular approvals made on the basis of a surrogate? We should find that all of them are trial level validation studies with strong correlation coefficients. And I show a graph where that's what we find. But of course, I had fictionalized this graph because that's not what we really find. What we find is just three out of 30 regular approvals, have such a strong correlation coefficient and 11 out of 30 there is no published study documenting the strength of that surrogate in that tumor type and setting ever in the biomedical literature so in other words we suggest quite strongly in this paper that the fda is not consistent with their own stated guidance of when they will give a regular approval based on a surrogate endpoint in a plurality of cases They are giving regular approvals based on surrogate endpoints when that surrogate has never been studied in a published paper in the entire biomedical literature to see how much of the treatment effect it captures. The treatment effect on the surrogate, how much treatment effect it captures. In other words, the plurality of the surrogates used for regular approval are unvalidated. And that cannot be the case if the standard is quote unquote established. So, like I said, I think reasonable people can disagree what quote reasonably likely to predict means. But I don't think reasonable people can agree that, quote unquote, established means never been studied. Established cannot mean never been studied. I'm no expert in English language, but I would say that 99% of human beings would say that when somebody says, oh, that's established, you would say, oh, wow, that's established. And they say, what do you mean by established? Oh, it's never been studied. Never been studied and established are two di- very different things. Okay, You don't need to be a rocket scientist to know that. So I think and I think we pushed this forth in the paper, that the FDA is not meeting their own stated standards for regular approval. You see, I see by the clock that I'm already at 22 minutes. And of course, I know when I gave this lecture, I gave it in 15, so it's quite punchy. It's very different than what you get here on the plenary session stage. But you know what? It's okay. You come to this podcast because you wanna learn more. Next slide. Now this is where I think the system is really broken. It would be okay if drugs came to the market based on accelerated approval, if they later, four years, five years on the market, proved they improved survival or quality of life or they improved outcomes that patients actually care about. You know, it's okay to accept some uncertainty on the front end if we verify that on the back end. But I show a paper by Chil Kim and I that appeared in JAMA Internal Medicine, a research letter in 2016, where we find this is only true for a fraction, you know, single digits to teens percentage of drug approvals, 4.5 years on the market. The vast majority of approvals, 80% plus, in 4.5 years on the U.S. market, if they were approved based on a surrogate, there is no other study that shows it improves overall survival. And this was extended by Tracy Rupp in a paper that appeared in Journal of Medicine to hold true for quality of life. And it was confirmed in a paper by Courtney Davis and colleagues in the BMJ for EMA approvals um, that also shows the exact same thing. So when you approve drugs based on a surrogate, and you're in this sort of bargain that, yes, in exchange for some speed, we're going to have some back-end requirement to show that these drugs actually improve the outcomes people care about, what you find is about five years on the market, they're not doing that. They're not holding up that back-end commitment. Next slide. Bishal, you know, you got to love Bishal. He's been a guest on this podcast before. At GM General Medicine just this week, he took this another step. He looked at the drugs that were granted accelerated approval. And then according to the FDA, they quote unquote confirmed clinical benefit. And what Bishaw finds is that 20% of the time they're quote confirming clinical benefit based on a surrogate outcome that is the exact same surrogate as in the pre-approval trial. Another 18% of the time they're confirming benefit based on a surrogate outcome that's different than the pre-approval trial. And only 16% of the time do they confirm benefit based on the clinical outcome like survival or quality of life. This is ridiculous. You're letting drugs come to market based on uncertain endpoints. And then later you're saying, well, they've shown they have clinical benefit in confirmatory studies, but you're accepting the exact same uncertain endpoints. How does that make sense? That makes no sense at all. Zeke Emanuel in the editorial says this makes no sense at all and this should be done away with. Um, Uh, Richard Lehman in the other editorial says this makes no sense at all. This is depriving patients of information they need to make decisions as to whether or not these drugs are right for them. So this is a breach of trust. This is a breach of the social contract. Next slide. Patients' experience. I come back to my points. Patients want two things. They want drugs that let them live longer, and they want drugs that let them live better. And what we find is that this is probably true for less than 50% of all cancer drugs at any point in the life cycle of cancer drug products. That's not that good. Patients want timely access to these drugs, and they want confidence these drugs help. Those are my other two points. I'm going to come to timely access in the final segment of this talk. But when we come to confidence these drugs help, I think we have to admit the fact that we live with massive uncertainty. We live with massive uncertainty as to whether or not these drugs actually let us live longer or live better lives. That uncertainty is even greater when you think about how these drugs are used in the real world in slightly different ways and certainly in different groups of people than they were studied in clinical trials. So when you ask the question of, you know, if I'm a patient coming in with cancer in a clinic in Montana and I am being prescribed a drug that was approved by the FDA four years ago, you know, on average, do I have strong confidence? These drug will help me live a longer or live a better life. And I think we'll have to admit that no, there's massive uncertainty there, massive uncertainty there. And that uncertainty is not going to get better over time. As we see in the papers by Bishal, the paper by Chul Kim and I, and the paper by Courtney Davis. Finally, We see regular approvals being made on surrogates that appear to contradict stated guidance that are given for surrogates that not only are not established, they don't have high trial-level validation coefficients, they have never even been studied in the biomedical literature. That is simply not good enough. Next slide. Next slide is a picture of Portland, Oregon, because right around in the actual talk, I was at about the 10-minute mark at this time, and I like to show people a picture of Portland, Oregon to let them relax, let them think let them let them take these in as i said the 15 minute talk rule the short talks is very foolish um, it doesn't really allow you to take somebody who's coming in there with such strong preconceived notions the opposite direction because they've never been exposed to this message they've only been exposed to the message um that is being promulgated by kols in the industry which is really the dominant message of our field that Surrogate endpoints are wonderful, that response rate drugs are magical, that, um, that you don't want to slow drugs to market, that innovation is fueled by surrogacy, that randomized control trials are foolish and misguided, and we can go to real world data and just look at response rates and we're going to be able to solve everything. So that's the marinade of, that, of oncology. And we're trying to, you know, you're trying to shift someone's thinking on this topic. Okay, back to my slides. Want timely access to these drugs. This is the next thing I come to. I show a slide by the Accelerated Approval Program taken from the FDA websites where they say, the use of a surrogate endpoint can considerably shorten the time required prior to receiving FDA approval. Boom, all in yellow. And then the next slide I say, it's one thing to say considerably, it's another thing to try to measure what that time savings is. And it had never been studied. It had never been studied until Emerson Chen decided to study it. And if you want to get a deep dive into this, you can listen to the bonus episode of this podcast a few episodes ago, where Emerson Chen came on this podcast and explained how he did it. This is papers called Estimation of Study Time Reduction Using Surrogate Endpoints Rather Than Overall Survival and Oncology Clinical Trials. It's published in JAMA Internal Medicine. It is a meta regression kind of paper. Um, I don't want to go through everything in it because it's quite technical. And I just want to hit you with a punchline. The punchline is that we find over a 7.3-year drug development time horizon, which is the median of medians in the preclinical drug development period, we find an 11-month reduction in time to bring a drug to market by using a surrogate endpoint, which is a 12% reduction in time. So it's 12% speed. Um, That's not bad. you know. That's not nothing. It's not 0%. It's also not 80%. I think we need to also say it's not 80%. It's 12%. And what's the trade-off? What do you get in exchange for that 12%? Well, you get to you get to the market faster. Oh, but you also get a whole heap load of uncertainty as to whether or not drugs help people live longer or live better, which turns out to be the thing they actually care about. So you get a heap load of uncertainty, but you get some speed. So why do we do this study? We do this study because we seek to quantify things that people speak to only in vague terms. That's called science. That's why you study things. You try to quantify something that people say Probably is true, but they don't know for sure, and they certainly never measured it. And that's a very valuable thing to do. The other thing I'd say, somebody says, well, you know, this is good, 12%, that'll bring drugs to market faster. I say, hold on a second. You know, uh, well, they say something like, in an alternative world where overall survival was more often the de facto endpoint, we'd be waiting 12% more. That's not so good. I'd say, "Hold, hold on just a second there. If you really wanted to have the thought experiment of what would happen in an alternative world, you got to do a few things more than what we do in this study. What you really are asking is in an alternative world where two-thirds of drug approvals are not based on surrogate endpoints but perhaps two-thirds are based on overall survival quality of life uh, and one and surrogacies are used more limitedly, as I'll talk about a paper where we explain this concept in the future, what does the counterfactual world look like? So we know what our world looks like today. We know what this Emerson Chen paper says, which is the average study time reduction in the current world. But what would a world look like where we actually force manufacturers to pursue endpoints that people care about a little bit more on the pre-end? It would look different in a number of ways. One, I think you would see changes throughout the drug development pipeline. Drugs that come to market merely on the basis of progression-free survival benefits in the absence of overall survival benefits would probably not lead to a slew of duplicative me-too drugs in the pipelines of other companies. I think you would also see drug makers wouldn't study drugs in the exact same line of therapy. A drug like pertuzumab and Cleopatra wouldn't be studied in the frontline metastatic setting as its first trial. It'd probably be studied in the latter line of therapy. A drug like um, palbocyclib, again, would probably be pursued more in a latter line of therapy. Why? Because a drug maker knows that, that in this alternative um, counterfactual world where OS is the de facto endpoint for drug approval, that they're going to have to show an OS benefit. And they know they don't want to wait around a long time for an OS benefit in a frontline untreated metastatic population. They've got to do it in the latter line of therapy first. And so they may pursue it in a line of therapy first. And actually, paradoxically, in certain cases, it may actually be associated with sometimes savings in bringing the drug to market. And then the next question will be, what will it take to move the drug up to the frontline setting? And if you really want to think through this experiment, there's one good place to do it. It's going to be in a forthcoming book called Malignant. So we'll hold off there. Okay, last theme of the, of the, of the lecture. It's amazing to me that I actually did this in 15 minutes. Um, one of the most vociferous, passionate, and very nearly constant complaints about the work we've done, is that you can't do randomized trials for these agents, these agents that were approved based on response rate, largely in single arm studies, for two reasons. One, these drugs are too potent. Would you, would you, if you have a drug like Gleevec that's a home run, would you really randomize people to not get in Gleevec? Come on, get out of here. Two, we can't enroll enough patients. These are rare disease, are you crazy? How are you gonna get all those patients you need for a randomized trial? These are the two common objections. So I wanted to tackle them in this lecture. First thing I show, is a paper by Emerson Chen that came out just last week, called an overview of cancer drugs approved by the U.S. Food and Drug Administration based on the surrogate endpoint of response rate. I just show one graphic that was taken from the supplement, um, and I and I show it alongside something from Gleevec um, that I really think hits this point hard. Uh, on the left, you see Imatinib, and you see the complete hematologic response rate in the original Phase One study in in untreated CPCML, and that's a that's a ninety eight percent CR rate, ninety eight percent CR rate. Okay, imatinib. That's the home run. That's the transformational drug of the last 30 years. It's the best drug we've made in the last 30 years. There's no doubt about that. Next to it, I show a waterfall plot of the complete response rate of every other drug approved on the basis of response rate that Emerson has made. So on the left, you see what what does a home run look like? What does a parachute look like? And what does everything else look like? And of course, the bars are not even close to the height of a imatinib. The median CR rate is 6% of a drug approved on the basis of response rate. I think when you start talking about 6% CR rates, you can't really say those are drugs that are too potent to be studied in randomized fashion against best available standard of care. They are not that potent. Well, you're talking about 98% CR rate that's very durable. Okay, now you're talking 6% CR rate that may not be that durable. No, you're not talking that at all. And if you, if you want to see uh, low response rate that are not durable, uh, l- let's, let's look at this FGFR inhibitor in bladder cancer. Come on. Come on, people. 30 some percent response rate, the durability of like five months. That's a drug that can be tested in randomized fashion against best available standard of care. No doubt about it. Okay, next slide. The next slide we show is that Emerson finds the median sample size of drugs approved on the basis of response rate is about 100. If you're consistently able to accrue 100 people to studies, you can do randomized trials. You have drugs that are not home run drugs, that are not that potent, they're not that active, and you have the sample size that warrants randomization, do randomized trials. Next slide. Okay, so I come back to the patient experience. Patient want drugs that let them live longer, live better, timely access, which is a question mark, assurance or confidence these drugs help, which is a big question mark. We have some speed savings by surrogate use. We have massive uncertainty that these drugs actually let people live better lives. The last thing I say, I talk about a paper that Derek Tao, Sally Schott and I did, um, which, which really talks about the spectrum of patients with cancer. Um, you know, I just like to say, you know, imagine there's two people, there's Tom and there's Susie. Tom is the kind of person that he's willing to try any chemical compound. For him, bioplausibility is sufficient Sooner drug approval is better for Tom. Uncertainty is a-okay. Tom has cancer. Tom is sick. Tom wants options. Tom doesn't really care about evidence. Tom just wants to have something he can try. Let's think about Susie. She's on the other end of the spectrum. Susie is meticulous. She wants more information. She methodically weighs the risks and benefits of treatment. She's okay with waiting 12% if that means more answers, more certainty to her. For her, uncertainty is unacceptable. She wants to be able to make life choices with some knowledge as to whether or not these drugs um, improve endpoints that she cares about. Okay, so that's Tom and that's Susie. I think most of us are a little bit Tom and a little bit Susie. We're somewhere on this spectrum of what people want. Next slide. So I say the bargain of accelerated approval was always that we can make both Tom and Susie happy. For Tom, you get accelerated approval. You get these drugs now. For drugs with statistically certain effects on endpoints thought reasonably likely to predict survival, you get access to chemical compounds. You may not have all the information up front. We don't know if they live, help you live a longer or better life, but you get that now. And for Susie, you get those post-marketing studies. You get that information later. Do the drugs help you live longer better life? You get that later. So the bargain of accelerated approval was that Tom is happy and Susie is happy. She doesn't wait that much longer for information. But the the way accelerated approval the social contract is broken is that Tom is very happy. But in the current regulatory environment, Susie is never happy. At 4.5 years of follow-up, the majority of cancer drugs approved on the basis of surrogate have not shown survival or quality of life benefits. Susie is waiting and waiting for some information as to what the magnitude of the benefit is and if if it outweighs the toxicity and harms, but Susie never gets what she wants. She's deprived of that information, and so the contract of accelerated approval is fractured. It's broken, and the FDA is converting the accelerated approval based on the exact same surrogate endpoint. How is that satisfying Susie? She's not happy. Tom is so unhappy that he he helps lobby for the right to try bill. That turns out actually is not helping anyone and, and is further breaking the system, The pendulum of regulatory science is swinging towards the Toms. They're all Toms. Maybe if Tom wants to be really happy, he starts investing in you know small biotech companies that are going to be bringing a drug to market based on uncontrolled studies. So then he'll be really, really happy. But Susie's not happy. We've forgotten about Susie. And Susie's not the kind of person that joins up for industry-sponsored patient advocacy groups. Oh, I mean, patient advocacy groups. Uh, the other part was irrelevant. Susie's not that kind of person. Susie doesn't go to the meetings and comes and testifies at the microphone. Toms, The Toms of the world are the ones who do that. I mean, this is the question that we face. There has not yet been a large-scale survey of all people in America who have cancer with questions worried. It in a way that are impartial to get the sense of what people actually want. But those of us who practice medicine, we know many, many Toms. We know many, many Susie's. Um, but I feel as if the narrative at a national level is distorted towards Toms and not Susie's. Okay, bottom line. it. Last couple of slides. So the bottom line is patients care about living longer, living better. We know that only maybe about a third of the time when drugs are approved. Mostly we use surrogate endpoints. Mostly they poorly correlate with what we really care about. These drugs seldom later improve what we really care about. Prescriptions are often validated by the same or other surrogates. These drugs are not parachutes. They don't have CR rates of 100% with durability. They have response rates of 30% with five months durability, as in this FGFR inhibitor in bladder cancer. That's not a parachute. The sample sizes are often adequate for randomized control trials. The speed saved is modest. In, in exchange for that modest speed savings, we accept massive uncertainty. We may benefit from that modest increase in speed, but we may also be approving many drugs that do not actually help people in America and the real world. We didn't mention at all during this talk that these drugs cost a fortune. And so I hate to say that I believe the current regulatory system favors the client, and the client is the industry. And the client may perhaps also be one end of the spectrum that is empowered and even funded by the industry to be quite vocal, but the current regulatory system neglects the other end of the spectrum. It neglects the Susies of the world, and it neglects the public, and it neglects the payers, and it neglects people who want To know with some confidence that cancer drugs as they are used in America make people better off Uh, and that really is the key question of drug regulation so solutions I think regular approval should seldom be used uh, for surrogate endpoints Um, the surrogate endpoints that really should be used for regular approval are established surrogates I believe that the FDA is violating this standard I believe accelerated approvals being used based on surrogates that's okay And we can have a reasonable disagreement about what reasonably likely to predict means. But we cannot have a reasonable disagreement that established means never been studied. That's not, that just can't be the case. That's illogical. Okay, so accelerated approvals, reasonably likely to predict, I'm okay with that. But they have to have post-marketing commitments that measure what people actually care about. They cannot be converted based on other surrogate endpoints. That makes no sense at all. Read the paper by Bashal and colleagues to learn more there. I believe randomization is underutilized. And in the lecture I actually said, which I think is true, the single greatest innovation in the twentieth century in medicine was randomization. Why? Because biomedicine is a field that is steeped that is marinated in modest to marginal effect sizes, and the only methodologic technique that consistently allows you to separate hope and hype and your wishful thinking and your um and, and, and all of those natural human emotions from the truth in biomedicine, when it comes to making an intervention that you think will make someone better off that at best has a modest to marginal effect size, the answer is randomization. It is the greatest invention of the 20th century and it is underutilized. And there's a movement to further underutilize it. And the reason that movement exists is not because I think people are acting in good faith and thinking about what's best for patients. It's because the less you use randomization, the more you win. And the more you win, the more you profit. That's the real motivation here. You would not have this many drugs coming to market if you required randomized control trial showing benefits on survival, not because people wouldn't want to jump through those hoops because some of these drugs probably don't achieve that endpoint. That's a, but that's the end point that matters. And it should be an achievable end point when you talk about severe life limited conditions, which I hope we've talked about in something that I have yet to record, which is the monologue for, um, um, for PARP inhibitors in, pancreas cancer. Okay, last slide. Last slide says, look, I can't tell you it all here. If you want to learn more, read surrogate endpoints in oncology. When are they acceptable for regulatory and clinical decisions? And are they currently overused by the great Robert Kemp, Oxford medical student and myself in the, BMC cancer, in the BMC medicine? And stay tuned, January 2020, malignant, how bad policy and bad education work against cancer patients. It's coming. And it's going to answer all of this and then some. All right, I'm happy to take questions. And then the questions came. And um, and then the questions ended. So that was how the, that was how the session went. This has been a 40-minute uh, a version of a 15-minute talk. I apologize to some degree um, for doing that to you. I, I could have tried to give it exactly as I gave it in the session. Um, maybe even simulated the echoey room that these sessions are given. But I decided not to. I decided to kind of take it a little bit longer, expand it a little bit. Um, and the reason I do so... Is is back to that point I keep hitting on that, you know, if you tell people things they already know, then 15 minute, quote unquote, educational sessions are educational. But if you actually want to educate somebody and take them through a concept and unpack trial level validation, I probably didn't even unpack it enough in this lecture uh, as I would have liked to. And, and and as I do in the class that I teach, where I really, really unpack it and I take people through and, and I have people, you know, work through some with me. Um, you really want to understand why. You know, why do we ask that surrogates are validated in this particular way? Is it because we're trying to be um, difficult? No. It's because when you actually sit down and think about it, this way of validating surrogates is like the right way. It like makes sense conceptually. And every other way that people purport to validate surrogates doesn't make sense conceptually. It's not actually validating what they think they're validating. And they would know that if they read the literature on trial level validation, and they wouldn't know that if they didn't. And they don't. And the reason they don't do that is because they are in their one tumor type and they are seeing some biomarker that excites them or perhaps that the company has excited them through some dinner that they went to. And they want that biomarker to be able to be employed for bringing drugs to market. Who wouldn't? Because if you can have a biomarker that's employed to bring drugs to market, you can bring drugs to market and then you're the person who brought the drug to market. And maybe you can also be the person who goes on the consulting tour. Okay, so they want these biomarkers, but they don't know the methods to validate those biomarkers as surrogate endpoints. And actually, novel biomarkers, it's quite difficult to validate as surrogate endpoints because you don't always have at your fingertips a wealth of prior randomized controlled trials that have measured both the putative surrogate, that biomarker, and the hard endpoint. And if you haven't measured in the prior trial, you can't really use that data, you see. So it's kind of a catch-22. It's a catch-22 so formidable that the ever-so-wise Robert Kemp once pointed out to me that for certain biomarkers... They, it's actually quite implausible that they will ever make a good surrogate because by the time you finish validating them and the number of studies you have to do to truly validate that biomarker, you could have just answered the hard endpoint question many, 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 many times over. And that was the wisdom of Robert Kemp. Well, all right, that's all for now on this, on this lecture topic. You've been listening to Plenary Session. Plenary Session is a podcast at the intersection of medicine, oncology, and health policy. I've been your host, Vinay Prasad. If you like this podcast and you like this episode, go to the iTunes store and give us five stars. It really means a lot. If you have the time, write a comment. If you want to give us feedback, you can follow us on Twitter at plenary underscore session, or you can send an email to plenary session at gmail.com. We like to know what you're thinking. What could be, be better? What topics could we cover? Um, how can we improve? Finally, Plenary Session owes a debt of gratitude to Kiana Klossner, Audrey Tran, and Ian Straley.